Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds called the GOP-controlled legislature for a special session to consider sweeping new restrictions on abortion. The new law, which bans abortion after six weeks, will end Iowa's increasingly rare status as a Republican-led state where abortions are allowed up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. The new limits would add Iowa to a list of conservative states, including Indiana. North Dakota and South Carolina that have passed abortion restrictions since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. Well, consumer price growth falls for the 12th consecutive month to 3%. Inflation data released today showed a pronounced cooling and offered some of the most hopeful news since the Federal Reserve began trying to tame rapid price increases 16 months ago. Now, slower inflation is unquestionably good news because it is allowing consumer paychecks to stretch further and is inflicting less pain at the gas pump and in the grocery aisle. The Justice Department has abandoned plans to defend Donald Trump in a lawsuit brought by E. Jean Carroll, saying in a court filing yesterday that it no longer believes Trump was acting within the scope of his presidential duties in 2019 when he allegedly defamed E. Jean Carroll while denying her rape accusation. The reversal lessens Trump's chances of escaping liability in Carroll's remaining lawsuit against him. Joe Biden is confronting a pissed off generation of young voters who may be decisive in the 2024 presidential election. One pollster sees flashing red signs on youth turnout as Gen Z and millennial voters who are not satisfied with either party could again play a decisive role in the next election. Biden campaign now is fighting back. It says that it will enlist surrogates who are younger and popular with Gen Z and millennials to help make the case for the Democratic president. Among them are Tennessee Representative Justin Jones, a 27-year-old state legislator who was expelled by Republicans after protesting in support of gun limits. And they're also calling on 26-year-old U.S. Representative Maxwell Frost, the youngest member of Congress from Florida. Bad news from men of color. A new report out says men of color often get cancer in unexpected places, leading to late diagnoses and poor outcomes. Melanoma is a far more deadly disease in Black men who may get skin cancer in unexpected places, such as fingernails and the bottoms of their feet. Now, this is according to a study of more than 205,000 cases. The study doesn't give us the answer as to why but it does shed light on these numbers. The Republican-led House is expected to vote as soon as this week on a $886 billion bill that aims to shape Pentagon policy next year. But its path to passage faces a potentially messy partisan battle over abortion access, LGBT rights, efforts to promote diversity in the military, and other politically charged social issues. Teens buying ghost guns online with deadly consequences as unserialized firearms proliferate on the streets. Teens discover the ease of obtaining weapons they couldn't get from a licensed dealer. Teenagers have discovered the ease with which they can acquire the parts for a ghost gun, and they have been buying, building, and unfortunately shooting the handmade guns with alarming frequency. 
because many ghost gun parts manufacturers do not consider their frames or receivers to be firearms, they do not believe they are required to conduct background checks or refuse to sell to teenagers. A ghost gun kit can cost between $800 and $1,000 and can be bought online. Now, for years, the makers of ghost guns point to letters issued by the ATF that rule that an unfinished frame or receiver was not a gun. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. I am joined today by two brilliant contributors. One is uh, a regular on the show, Alan Orr. He is an immigration attorney extraordinaire and a proud graduate of Howard University. And joining us for her debut appearance is Mona Lisa Johnson. She is an activist and commentator. They are going to help me in our one breakdown today's trending news and give us some of their unfiltered opinions. And in hour two, we are going, as we always do, behind the headlines and talk about those stories that have people talking. And today, that story is about patriarchy. Yes, for decades, scientists have believed that early humans had a division of labor, that men generally did the hunting and women did the gathering. I never did believe that story. <laughs> and now... As you know, this view hasn't been limited to academics. It's often been used to make the case that men and women today should stick to supposedly natural roles that early human society reveals. And we know urban tales like this one causes many people to believe that men are superior to women and that Men are natural born leaders and that somehow women should stay in their inferior roles. Well, I'm going to talk to an expert who has a lot of knowledge about this new study out that debunks this myth and helps us understand how male patriarchy is embedded in our society by choice and not because of archaeologies or archaeologists' finds related to early humans. And in hour two, Congresswoman Barbara Lee is here. She's here to talk about California reparations and what's going on in Washington. But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. I am so, so, so excited that the trial regarding the fight over Aretha Franklin's estate was resolved. Now, it was resolved via a jury verdict. Uh, as you all know, Aretha Franklin had four sons at the time of her death. One, uh, unfortunately, is disabled and has a conservator that represents him. But her other three sons were fighting over the validity of two wills. Uh, Aretha Franklin had a will that was apparently tucked away in a secure box, but later one of her sons found, or I guess her niece discovered, inside a notebook in 2019, a will that was stuffed uh, like between you know the cushions of the couch or underneath the couch, and a dispute ensued between her sons, Ted White Jr was against her son, Kikalf, and Edward Franklin. And the, the three of them were fighting over her estate. Now, Aretha Franklin did not leave a formal will prior to her death in 2018. She was, however, in conversations with a law firm and an attorney about making 
a formal will, but unfortunately she died before that. Uh, so here you have these two competing wills and there were some differences. Both of the wills divided her estate between or amongst her four children, but the different wills named different sons as the executor of her estate. The will that was uh, handwritten in the notebook and pushed between the cushions and the couch named her son Kikalf as the executor. And that is the will that the jurors decided was the legitimate and valid will. That will also gave uh, that son, Kikalf, the rights to move into her Bloomfield uh, Michigan home. So he and his family now will be taking possession of that home, which they say is worth over a million dollars. Uh, and one of the, the really positive notes for me about this story is that Aretha Franklin died with an estate worth $80 million. Now, some may say, why is that shocking? And perhaps even why wasn't the estate larger given the kind of success that Aretha Franklin had as a performer. But here's the reality. We have seen too often African-American celebrities, entertainers, singers die. And what the family is fighting about is oftentimes debt because there is nothing in the estate. They've been uh, robbed. They've been defrauded by managers and agents. Oftentimes singers, unfortunately, don't have good money management skills themselves. So they have you know, wasted a lot of money in their estate, therefore has no assets at the time of their death. Uh, again, you know, we, we need only look at some of the biopics of really successful Black singers to see this story played over and over again. So I want to give it up to Aretha Franklin for managing her money well, for making good choices as it relates to those who helped her to manage her money, and to leaving a legacy, uh, not just her incredible catalog of music, but leaving an estate worth $80 million. Now, it saddens me that the sons had to go to court, that they sued each other, and it's been this five-year battle over her estate. But I'm hoping now that the financial piece is resolved and they know who the executor is, that maybe these brothers can come together in love and harmony uh, and do what any mother would want their uh, children to do, which is to be, you know, in harmony with each other because she does have a bunch of grandkids. She has nieces and nephews and other family members. So we want to see this family healed, uh, you know, and hopefully this process allows them to start that healing process. So again, I want to give it up to Aretha Franklin for leaving some pretty substantial coins to her family. When we come forward, more on KBLA Talk 1580 with today's trending news and my expert contributors. We are back, and this is hour one of Ariva Martin in real time. And this is the hour where we break down today's trending news with you know, brilliant contributors. And joining me is immigration attorney Alan Orr and Mona Lisa Johnson. She's an activist and commentator. So, Alan, welcome back. Always a pleasure to see you, my friend. This one is for you. I, I, I was doing a happy dance when I saw that the Justice Department abandoned the plan to defend Donald Trump in that civil lawsuit for defamation brought by E. Jean Carroll. We know it was the Bill Barr DOJ, Department of Justice, that was providing a defense for Donald Trump 
when uh, E. Jean Carroll sued him, but I never believed that the Justice Department should have gotten involved in that case. And now the Justice Department is saying, look, because of the $5 million verdict that E. Jean Carroll secured against Donald Trump uh, recently in a New York court, a case that involved both defamation and claims of sexual uh, you know, misconduct or assault on the part of Donald Trump, they're saying there's no basis for him to claim that any defam defamatory statement he made about E. Jean Carroll was made in the scope of his presidential duties. Were you surprised that this Justice Department has taken this position uh, and the timing of which they are now asserting it? Uh, not surprised. I mean, I think uh, we should say that Merrick Garland, when he came to his office, also supported what Bill Barr said. And so then he had to change his mind as recently after the ruling came out. And then after President Trump went on CNN and said what he said, saying that clearly this, you know, his comments were not in the presidential fashion then. And they clearly aren't even now. And that's what sort of led him to make this change of opinion. But once again, I think it was the wrong decision in the very beginning. So I'm just happy that they're making the corrective flow. We all want to protect our president when there is a president to make sure when they make statements in the line of their duty that is protected. But this clearly was outside of that scope. Yeah, and I'm glad you made that point because at the same time, the Justice Department is fighting to prevent Donald Trump from having to give a deposition in a wrongful termination claim filed by uh, former FBI agents who are claiming that Donald Trump targeted them. And for the very reasons that you just said, they're taking the position that uh, the ex-president should not be deposed in that civil lawsuit, that there are others who have information uh, because we don't generally want our president uh, deposed, you know, in these kinds of matters. So any claim that Trump is making that the DOJ's refusal to uh, continue to represent him in the E. Jean Carroll case because they are somehow targeting him because he's, you know, leading in the polls, you know, th that's just another fabrication. That's more gaslighting by Donald Trump. This DOJ is, is being incredibly consistent and fair and representing him when they should and not representing him when they should not. Uh, let's talk, uh, Mona Lisa, let's get your opinion about this Iowa vote. So you have the very popular governor, Kim Reynolds, calls this special session of the GOP-controlled legislature in Iowa saying, look, uh, let's get this law passed that bans abortions after six weeks. We know most women don't even know that they're pregnant in the first six weeks. So for all practical purposes, this is a complete ban on abortions and Iowa had been one of those states that had not uh, take, uh, you know, had not uh, enacted a law as restrictive as other conservative states like Indiana, North Dakota. Uh, we know the backlash that happened just last year in the midterms uh, because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So uh, is this political suicide for this governor? I personally believe that it is. I mean, overall, let's think about this logically. Uh, abortion is not a political matter. Abortion is a personal and medical matter. There should be no laws across the country banning abortion in any way, shape or form that tell you what you can and cannot do. I noticed that there was a part of the law that said that after so many days, um, if you were, say, raped by someone that you would have had to reported it um, in order to be able to get the abortion. I personally think that's ludicrous because Yes, you may have reported it. Maybe you haven't reported it. But at the end of the day, that's your personal decision to either keep a child or to release a child. 
Um, I, I, I can't necessarily say I'm against abortion or for abortion because I just say it is about what is your situation. How are you deciding to handle it for your own life? We should not be making this a political anything and across. And as long as they keep doing this, I, I want to say absolutely. It should it should be suicide if it's not going to. It should. And, and we know, Alan, uh, Kim Reynolds has been in the news for other things. In addition to this just really dramatic uh, effort on her part to ensure that Iowa joins Indiana, North Dakota, South Carolina and those other states that basically have near bans on abortion. Uh, Donald Trump is tweeting or uh, posting on Truth Social about Kim Reynolds, apparently pissed off that she's cozying up with Ron DeSantis, has not endorsed him yet, saying that she's going to remain neutral. And he's reminded her that she is in that job, according to him, because he supported her. Uh, do you think Kim Reynolds is making this move on abortion to try to, you know, solidify her super conservative, you know, bona fides? Is this, is this her way of saying, well, I may not be endorsing Donald Trump, but don't get it twisted. I'm still very much, you know, on the right of most conservatives. Um, so on the Donald Trump issue, either you're with me or you're against me. And since she didn't go for him, he's against her. So she's already out to, along with Ron DeSantis. They have no, absolutely no chance of doing anything. Uh, if if Trump fails, then she's still done because that part of the percentage are true heart Trumpians. I think on the legal front, which I think is important to talk about what she did legislatively is she passed a bill that had already been challenged in court and lost. So yeah. that's a statement about her, uh, how bold she is in this place to, to do something the court already said you cannot do to sort of legislate through. And so that's part of the conservative platform, right? Unlike Democrats, they're willing to do it. No, it's not going to pass legal muster, but do it anyway to say they did it and then have it sort of hurt back, um, which, you know, I will say Biden to do that with student loans. We're going to move forward with this and then sort of see where it goes. But a little bit different, though. He didn't know from the very beginning. A court had not said you could not do this. Right. right it was a question right. that they could. So I, I'm wondering what her strategy is. Right. Because that's one of the things that you don't really have right now. in The Republican Party is the woman head leader who's going to do something in the party. You really don't have someone who's stepping out heads above. Nikki Haley is not that person. Right. So. We're looking for someone to make that sort of inroad, and maybe that's what she's trying to, to go for, right? Because we also know the lady from wherever she's from that lost the governor's race is crazy Wait. and has always was in the media before. She's also not that person. Yeah, then you raise a really good point about the, the legality. You know, basically, law be damn, right? Courts be yeah. damn. I'm yeah. going to use my power as a Republican governor and my power over this GOP controlled legislature to bring you back in this special session to pass a law, as you said, that had already been challenged in the courts. So, and she knows that there's going to be yet another court challenge. And based on, you know, how the court has already ruled on this, she's likely to lose. But I think you're right. These Republicans, many of them are vying for attention. They're vying for uh, ratings. They're vying for interviews on Fox News. They're not necessarily doing things that are in the best interest of their constituents or things that are, you know, that comport with legal precedent. It's just all about the attention. How many likes can I get? Can I go viral? You know, can I get the attention of the base? Uh, and she, I think, because of what's going on with Trump, this may just be another way for her to, to distract uh, from, you know, Trump's attack on her, which I, I presume are only going to become more intense if she continues to be what he calls cozy <laughs> with Ron DeSantis. Uh, some good news, Mona Lisa. Finally, inflation. Uh, people's paychecks are, are, should be stretching a lot further than they have been. 
that gas price at the pump should be down, your grocery bill should be lower, all of this at the same time that unemployment rates are low, Joe Biden is killing it on the economy. Well, you know, folks like to say the Republicans are, are better in terms of managing the economy. Not true. Gaslighting. Uh, but despite what he's doing with the economy, there's also this headline about young folks being pissed off. How do we, you know, jive the two when you have these phenomenal inflation numbers, but you have young people saying we're not happy. We, we, we still not happy. Can, can I say that they ain't never happy? Okay. <laughs> All right. Let me just keep it real. Uh, I have a 30 year old daughter. Don't, I won't say my age, but I have a 30. And so I have, she's still a millennial. She can right. she's a millennial. And then I have some 25 year olds and some 26 year olds and some 23 year olds that work for me. And they are never happy. Every day they wake up filled with anxiety. They've got one problem after another. And when you talk to them, all they ever think about is how old Joe Biden is. Okay, if you, okay, yes, he's old as dirt, okay? But the, if you can get past that and see what he's done thus far and really tune into that, these kids might be able to start to uh, really, uh, you know, make their decision to vote for him because at this point, they're confused. They don't know what to do because all they want to do is stay in, stay in their state of, uh, um, it's, it's giving me vibes of anxiety. It's giving me vibes of the old man scenario. Get out of that. Get out of that and go do your research is what I'd like to tell them. That's what they need to do. But at the same time, I think Biden should invest in a influencer campaign, like really go out and try to teach some of these younger people from the age of 18 to from the voting age, from the age of 18 on to 35, I'd say. Right. Really try to teach them. What have I done? How have I affected your generation? How have I affected your life? And then when they see it and their eyes awaken to that, maybe they can be more decisive in their vote and make a better decision because most of them feel like I don't even need to vote. It doesn't count. So what's the point? That's the most ludicrous thing in the world. Do you, baby? I get mad when I think about it. I'm sorry. I just get so mad. I see you getting all passionate. You're like, you just get upset thinking about it. Well, you know, the other thing we should do, Mona Lisa, is stop paying for their gas. Because maybe if they went to the gas station, I know I get happy when I see when my, you know, the pump starts stopping and I'm only at about $70. I'm like, wait a minute. Is there been a drop in gas prices? Something's going on here. But right. I, I think a lot of that you and I are probably responsible for because we probably are, uh, you know, providing too much, right? Uh, and they are so entitled that they can't even appreciate when gas prices fall because if you ain't buying gas, you're not checking for the price of gas. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about how Biden is trying to address this young generation with some influencers, as you talked about. Will that be effective? Will that be enough? Because there is some real concerns as we move into 2024. And I want to ask Alan about men and their health and this outrageous and scary report out about men, black men in particular, and cancer. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and you are listening to Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And this is hour one. So we are tracking today's trending news and we are bringing you expert opinions from our contributors. In hour two, we are debunking the myth that men are by definition superior to women. And we are also talking with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. So make sure you stick around for hour two. Okay, Alan, uh, we're talking about Biden and his problem with uh, these Generation Z and millennials who are pissed off uh, about him. And Mona Lisa, I think, put it best when she said they are obsessed with his age and the fact that he is uh, a mature, uh, 
father and grandfather, and they can't seem to uh, appreciate the significant policy wins and other things that Biden has done uh, since he and Kamala Harris have been in office. Now, Biden says we're going to counter this by enlisting influencers like uh, Tennessee Representative Justin Jones and Florida Congressman uh, Maxwell Frost. Do you think these are the right guys? And is this the right plan? So I think the first thing that we're missing is the problem, because I think the, the biggest problem is that people don't understand civics and they think that the president is has the impact on their life. And they don't realize that it's their local elected people who impact their lives more than the president does. So every problem that they're having locally, <coughs> they are amplifying it and saying it's the president. So that's number one. And that is a problem since we're in community. I'm going to say this it's about black people to me. And I'll say this about black people. They didn't show up during the last election. Right. Black numbers were down across the board. That's why we don't have the governors. That's why Chambers didn't get elected with all the Black people who were in Louisiana. That's why we don't have the Senate, because people chose not to show up for whatever reason. And for that, I forgive you and family. God bless you. Let's do better this time. Because now we know what's at stake because we've seen the Supreme Court take action. The Republicans have told you what they're going to do to women and the Black people into affirmative action. They're already working on it. So amplify your ass to the poll to make a vote and make a plan today and register to vote. because. Black people, specifically us, cannot say, I cannot afford to vote. And all those people, those stars and sideliners who were saying it's not important that you vote, to hell with them, right? Don't listen yeah. to those people at all, right? Cancel every one of them. Don't listen to none of them. If they don't want to vote because they have billions of dollars and they have millions of dollars, then it ain't for them. It is for you. And we've already seen this happen across the board. Enlisting young people is using that very populist thing of saying, okay, you got someone who's a celebrity and they're going to show up to celebrities. Well, they had Beyonce and they had... Uh, uh, Miss Washington and everybody else at the last event, people still didn't show out. So, you know, and then people say, you know, send me a hundred dollar check and all this other kind of foolishness. I think that we really need to take some focus and understand what it's about. It's not about handouts. It's not about what you're getting. It's about empowering yourself by the power of your vote. And that's the one place that we're all equal. All those people buying the Supreme Court justice, you don't have the money to buy a Supreme Court justice. But what you do have the money to do is to elect people in your jurisdiction and to pick people who will represent you in all these different places. You have seen it happen over and over again. It just happened here in Tennessee with the Justins, right? They told them, oh, you're too black, sit down. And then people went out and they voted them back in the office. They wasted Tennessee money. You see it happening across the United States with women saying, okay, women, you don't count. You can't have this abortion thing. And now they're showing up. So it is time to build a coalition and to show up because it isn't about the trans people. It's not about the gay people. It's not about the people at the border because listen, Borders down 70%. The economy's under control. You got a black vice president. You got a black Supreme Court justice, right? On your little rap sheet, what else did you need, right? A check? Okay, he tried to, he tried to they, take- They had a money. check too. Remember, we had some checks. We had right? checks. So, you know, I'm gonna need you to show up. I mean, I mean, I don't know how I need to incentivize you to want a better life for yourself. That's the problem for me, that people feel like they need to be incentivized to make a choice not to be enslaved. That is the dumbest. I, I am so pissed at the moment about this in community, right? Because I think Black people need to talk to Black people. Mamas, aunts, all that need to talk. Churches, it should be going on every day to talk about political power and how they're coming after you, specifically since they did affirmative action. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because, Mona Lisa, you, you have millennial children. You work with millennials in your business. I, I'm cool with the Justins. I love the Justins. I love their story out of Tennessee. As you said, Alan have a very powerful story. I love Maxwell Frost. But I think from my experience doing uh, voter registration and working on campaigns, people vote 
when they are talking to people that they know, that they trust. And it's really those grassroots efforts. It's my daughters talking to their friends who maybe didn't grow up in a household where voting was talked about and them talking, you know, friend to friend, colleague to colleague, student to student, much more so than listening to uh, Justin Jones from Tennessee if I am a millennial or a Gen Z here in California. What's your take on that? What do you think is the best way? You mentioned influencers, and, and I don't want to discount the importance of influencers, but I, I think if we just focus on so-called influencers, we're going to miss the majority of those young voters. Well, you know, I'm going to say something that probably would be, you know, accepted and unaccepted to a certain degree, but you know, if you hit it on the social media side, the TikToks, the Instagram, the Facebook and things like that, that's all they seem to pay attention to. It seems like that's their world. They live in this falsified world that as long as it exists in social media, then it's got to be real. So, you know, that's why I was saying influencers and maybe not so much celebrity influencers, but surrogates, you know, people who you can find as leaders in the HBCUs. Uh, go find, you know, people who are leaders from the D9, you know, and, and their children and their children's children and just get people out there across every single major city where we need the black turnout and we need the young vote to turn out and start having, pep, uh, not pep rallies, um, um, uh, what am I saying? Not pep rallies, uh, the uh, town halls. Start having okay. town halls, town halls in each one of the um, each one of the cities, and start getting these people to come out and talk, and really use social media um, as their strong power because they are going to listen. They're going to listen to whatever is said if you get a TikTok video rolling out there. Yeah, and, and Alan, you know, I, I saw an article today. I didn't even read it. I started to read it, but you know, I have to limit what I put in my brain because some stuff mm -hmm. I just feel like is junk. But Robert Kennedy was mm. hugging. I don't know if you saw this. Mm. He was hugging Ice Cube. Mm. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about, I think he called him an esteemed civil rights leader. Mm -hmm. I know it was civil rights leader. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, Robert Kennedy, mm -hmm. we know you got issues, mm -hmm. but you got to do better than that. How mm -hmm. is it that Robert Kennedy Allen is equating and not to say Ice Cube is not in his own way an activist and he hasn't done things, you know, for the community. But he ain't a civil rights leader. I'll say it. Yeah, let's, let's just I'll keep it real. Let's no keep it a buck. He is not a civil rights leader. Okay. He made a movie. Great. OK. Yeah, um, he bought a basketball league or something. He's made okay, some yeah, records. Three on three. OK, that ain't that ain't changed people's lives across the board. And uh, he did some detriment in the last election alone. Um, by saying that he didn't, that Biden didn't reach out to him. And when Cedric Richmond, who was my classmate from Morehouse, in fact, said he did reach out to him, gave his phone number. I mean, in the photograph, he's not standing between two civil rights leaders, right? It's between two other white dudes and the other white dude. I don't even know who his name is, right? So look at the character of the photo and who is this Kennedy guy anointing anybody, right? Camelot is dead. So I don't even know what that fiction was in the mind of sort of saying, uh, I find it odd that in Black communities, they have someone, someone's telling us who our leader is, yeah. right? Why are we saying who he is or showing up in that sort of way or have a, some history of doing civil rights stuff, right? I always find that it's odd to me to have that sort of inflection from someone who just made a hit or was on television or a celebrity to sort of talk about things that they don't have knowledge about uh, politically, someone who hasn't worked in the community, someone who doesn't have a history of working in the community, right? Um, I didn't see him at any of the marches in Washington, D.C. I've never seen him be part of any of the urban leagues or any of the other civil rights movements across the board. He might have given money and, and congratulations for that. So did other people. But a civil rights leader, he is not. Um, 
And well, we've seen that with Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you remember, he would grab Don King. He, he would grab any black celebrity, Jim Brown, <laughs> that he could find and anoint them as like the leader of the black community. That, that seems to be, silk. You know, out of the playbook of these white leaders themselves who are so out of touch and so tone deaf about our community. And rather than talk to people that have been, as you said, working on issues of civil rights, social justice issues, they they find these celebrities, and maybe because they think they have a big platform on social media, they're gonna you know get a photo op or something. But it, it was really, I, I said, I didn't read the story. I was like, okay, you know what? Some really? stuff I don't even need to fill in my brain. I just want to give this small piece of legal advice, though, and it's not really legal in a sense, but it's really the key to the to the girl to the girl for voting. If every black person that was able to vote voted, we would rock the elections because, in general, Americans don't vote just like we don't have passports. So if we all determined that we were going to vote, if we all voted, we would see it drastically different. And on top of that, as a lawyer who is in civil rights, we saw that there were two states that had gerrymandered districts that are not constitutional, that currently have people in Congress making rules that should not represent those areas. That is a farce of law to me. How does that happen? As a lawyer, you cannot respect that now you have people who are seated who should not be seated constitutionally, because the Supreme Court removed something and they said, this is illegal, but now you still get to deal with that into the next election. That is, you know, just crazy to me. Not only if all black folks voted, if all Democrats voted, Republicans would never, ever win any elections. And definitely they would never win the House, the Senate or the White House. When we come forward, we're going to talk about this alarming new report about black men and cancer. How do we save the lives of our brothers? Right here on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and make sure you stick around for hour two because we're going to be talking about the myth that men are somehow superior to women because they were the so-called hunters and women were the gatherers. There's some new studies out by noted archaeologists that say that has always been false. Uh, and now they're uh, revealing what history really shows, which is that women were hunters themselves and how we need to rethink Many of the ways that we uh, have already always assumed that men were superior to women. And also Congresswoman Barbara Lee is going to join us to talk about the California Reparations Task Force 1000 page report and talk about some politics and what's going on in D.C. But I'm back with my contributors, Mona Lisa Johnson and immigration attorney Alan Orr. OK, Mona Lisa, you said you have some thoughts about this new report out about black men and skin cancer. The report says that it's skin cancer is more deadly in black men than expected. And it shows up in unexpected places like fingernails and the bottoms of their feet. The study went on to say that uh, particularly dark skinned black men. Uh, skin cancer can often be missed by doctors who can't see you know, changes in their skin color because of the pigmentation. So what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, well, first of all, health inequities have been a problem for decades. Let's face that. And the pandemic only raised the dirty curtain, in my opinion, to uh, show the problem and what was really there. And, you know, the study reveals on every level that the Black community for a long time has had cancer. This is not anything new. That we, we know that it hits us differently than any other community. We know that there has been so many people who've experienced racial injustices from their doctors, where I'll give you a perfect example. A Black man would go into a doctor and he would say, you know, I have these 
have these symptoms and they would just blow it off as, you know, mm, it's probably nothing. You'll be OK when you're mm -hmm. sitting there with cancer in fourth stage. And the next thing you know, when it is found, you're at your deathbed. So in my opinion, it, it's it's been going on for for decades. And I just feel like the pandemic showed us that, you know, we need to do something about it. No, absolutely. Health uh, inequities is a huge issue. We know that particularly not just men, but black women in particular face a lot of uh, issues, barriers, discrimination in our healthcare system. Uh, this myth that many doctors still believe that somehow we have this higher threshold of pain. Uh, we know that black women are often dismissed. Their complaints about pain, their complaints, their symptoms are often dismissed. I've been involved myself as an advocate for an older black woman who was basically uh, told to go home and get on hospice and die because she also uh, presented with a malignant tumor. And by advocating for her getting her to a different doctor, she was able to have surgery. She's up, back, walking around. Not to say that she still, you know, is not sick or doesn't have cancer, but her quality of life was instantly improved. And it's been extended because she got to doctors that cared and had a different lens. So, Alan, you know, one of the things we know, we know it's the healthcare system. We know it's biased. We know it's biased uh, in a way that disfavors Black folks, but we also know black men. Y'all got issues since we were talking to the community today. Y'all got <laughs> issues with going to the doctor. You know, this this macho kind of attitude, this sense of, you know, being invincible that nothing can get me down. I don't need a doctor. Earthquake has a, a comedy special out where he talks about, you know, getting a, a, a rectal exam for <laughs> uh, prostate cancer. And how yeah. challenging it was as he was encouraging men to do so. He was making jokes about it, but he was definitely saying, get your vaccines for COVID, get all of your exams. But do you think we're making some breakthrough with black men around, you know, this issue of I'm so tough, I don't need the doctor? So I think, and there are a couple other community things we should think about. One, right, access to health care, right? Some people just can't afford it, right? It's an affordability issue. And then there's also the fear of you just don't want to know, right? I don't, if it's going to kill me, why knowing it's going to sort of help me in that capacity. Uh, I think the other challenge is that, you know, Black people have not been the standard for science and education in this sort of skincare capacity. It's always been a different complexion for which we allocate our resources to make sure that people are tan, right? They're out tanning and, and we're out sort of doing sunscreen. I think also Black people have been told you don't need sunscreen. Well, that's a lie. And it's 110 degrees outside, you need sunscreen, you need to cover up, right? You get cancer just like everyone else. And right. you also need to make some good choices as a patient, right? You should ask your doctor, are you familiar with black people and black bodies, right? You don't go to your hairdresser to ask about your teeth. So when you go to your doctor, you want to make sure they know other black patients, other black community, things with black people, cancer, like heart disease, all the numbers and statistics for black people, because there are some differences that don't make us different as, as a race of people or as sort of a humankind, but there are some differences just based on the food, culture, native history that people should learn and sort of know about, so just like sickle cell anemia, right? So people need to be aware of the challenges that are faced in our community. You need to go to doctors and some doctors may be CUs and some doctors may look like you, but also not care about you in the same way. So you wanna make sure that they have the capacity to reach those sort of things. Cancer has killed the black community over and over again between cigarettes, hair care products, right? makeup, skin whitening, cream, and all this other stuff has been sold to us that we're actually buying cancer from the, from the shelf. 
And so we need to be aware of these things that are sort of adding to our health. And part of that is being aware, being an advocate for yourself. And there is a men's healthcare facility out of Morehouse College that people can go to and sort of see some of the challenges for black men. And you should search for those things. The AARP also is doing a good job of sort of doing representation for older communities of people or minorities in college to sort of reach out to them and say, did you check on this? Did you do this? Okay, but uh, thank you. Great information. Now answer my damn question, which is, what? are black men going to the doctor? No. <laughs> lawyer? Lawyer? No. Thank yeah. you for that wonderful <laughs> lawyerly uh, answer. If they can afford to go, they're going. I think that that's the challenge. But yes, I think there's an apprehension and I just, I don't know how to reach it in the same way. I, I it, And it's, yeah, no. The answer is no. Are they going in the numbers they should be going? Are they getting the checks they should be having? Absolutely not. And I can't address the fear. I guess the concern is that someone's going to tell me I'm going to die and hearing it is going to make me die. When in fact, hearing it may keep you from dying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you experience, Mona Lisa, in your own you know, personal circle? Do you have men who are like Alan said, hey, I, I don't want to know about it. So I'm just going to be in blissful ignorance. Uh, I, something's growing out of my neck. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to hope that it goes away magically or something. Or are you seeing men saying, you know what, I, I want to start preventative care. I don't care if it's bad news. I want the bad news because, I, you know, maybe I can do something about it. Yeah. So I'll say yes and no to that. Yes, I am absolutely and have seen it for many years up until Obama came into the office. I saw many of my family members. I saw my my husband. Well, now my fiance, because that was a husband. Um, <laughs> and um, I saw people from the past, you know. And growing up, you know, my dad, my uncles and things like that, who just would not do it because they were the macho man. They didn't believe that the doctors would help them. They absolutely didn't believe in the system that would help them. Uh, then as a, when Obama came and Obamacare kicked in, or I know it's not really physically called Obamacare, but we call it Obamacare in the community. Um, when it kicked in, they started to realize that they could go online. They could actually get insurance. No, if they didn't make any money, they could get insurance. If they made $20,000 a year, they could get insurance, some for free, some for $20 a month, $50 a month. I started seeing people because I began to educate everyone around me. And then mm -hmm. I started putting it all through my social media that, hey, you don't have to go without insurance. Right. You can go online and you can get insurance every day, just like anybody else. And you can have the same access like everyone else. You just got to do the work. No, that's a really good point. I actually had a brother-in-law who didn't vote for Obama and was not uh, a Democrat and still isn't. But boy, when Obamacare became available, he got him some Obamacare and he went and took care of every medical condition he had. So we would always tease him. You know what? You didn't even vote for Obama. Get off that Obamacare. But right. you know, we were very happy as a family that he decided to get insurance and to take care of you know his health because, you know, your health is your wealth. And that's one of the things we want to make sure folks understand is, you know, without your health, you, you basically have nothing. Uh, nothing matters if, if you do not take care of your health. So we hope this report out encourages more men uh, to check out their skin, uh, start wearing that sunscreen, as you said, Alan, not out there sunbathing, not thinking that black folks don't get skin cancer because we do. Uh, and really take to heart what uh, Mona Lisa said about finding you some affordable health care because affordable health care is there. And then there's centers like the one at Howard University and other places where you can access health care. Thank you. We are out of time. Thank you, Mona Lisa Johnson. A pleasure to have you. I uh, hope you will come back and join us. And Alan Orr, always a pleasure to see you, my friend. When we come forward, we're going to talk about those myths that have made men and women for a long, long time in this country believe that men were superior. And we're also going to talk 
to Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds called the GOP-controlled legislature for a special session to consider sweeping new restrictions on abortion. The new law, which bans abortion after six weeks, will end Iowa's increasingly rare status as a Republican-led state where abortions are allowed up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. The new limits would add Iowa to a list of conservative states, including Indiana, North Dakota, and South Carolina, that have passed abortion restrictions since the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Well, consumer price growth falls for the 12th consecutive month to just 3%. Inflation data released today shows a pronounced cooling and offers some of the most hopeful news since the Federal Reserve began trying to tame rapid price increases 16 months ago. Slower inflation is unquestionably good news because it is allowing consumer paychecks to stretch further and is inflicting less pain at the gas pump and the grocery aisle. The Justice Department has abandoned plans to defend Donald Trump in a lawsuit brought by E. Jean Carroll, saying in a court filing that it no longer believes Trump was acting within the scope of his presidential duties in 2019 when he allegedly defamed Carroll while denying her rape accusation. Now, this reversal lessens Trump's chances of escaping liability in Carroll's remaining civil lawsuit against him. Joe Biden is confronting a pissed off generation of young voters who may be decisive in terms of the presidential election in 2024. One pollster sees flashing red signs on youth turnout as Gen Z and millennial voters who are not satisfied with either party could again play a decisive role in the next election. Biden's campaign is not taking the sitting down. He is planning to drive the contrast with Donald Trump and enlist surrogates who are younger and popular with Gen Z and millennials to help him make the case for the Democrats. Among them are Tennessee Representative Justin Jones, a 27-year-old state legislator who was expelled by Republicans after protesting in support of gun limits and who was then reinstated and then re-won his seat in that Tennessee legislature, and he's also calling on 26-year-old U.S. Representative Maxwell Frost. As you will remember, Frost is the youngest member of Congress, and he was too elected after becoming an active and vocal gun control law advocate. Well, men of color often get an unexpected cancer in unexpected places, leading to late diagnoses and poor outcomes. Melanoma is far more deadly, and that's skin cancer, and Black men who may get the cancer in unexpected places, such as fingernails and the bottoms of their feet. Now, this is according to a new study of more than 205,000 cases. The study doesn't give us the answer as to why this cancer is showing up in these unexpected places uh, for Black men, but it sheds light on the numbers and is a wake-up call for Black men to make sure you are taking care of your skin and getting regular checkups. The Republican-led House is expected to vote as soon as this week on an $866 billion bill that aims to shape Pentagon policy next year, but its path to passage faces a potentially messy partisan battle over abortion access, LGBT rights, 
efforts to promote diversity in the military and other politically charged social issues. Well, I am so happy about this news because a handwritten document signed by Aretha Franklin and found in a couch months after her death has been determined to be a valid will in the state of Michigan. A jury decided yesterday that the will was valid, and this ended a long five-year dispute among Aretha Franklin's four sons. It initially appeared that the Queen of Soul did not leave a will for her estimated $80 million estate after she unfortunately died of pancreatic cancer in August of 2018. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. We are in hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we go behind the headlines. We dig a little deeper on those stories that have people talking and those stories that people are just generally interested in. And today, that Topic that story is about male patriarchy. If you are a woman, you have probably been told that you are a gatherer and that the man in your life is a hunter and that that is not something that the man decided, but it's, it's something that you know, a division of labor that was decided centuries and centuries ago. And that's because for decades, scientists have believed that early humans had a division of labor. And that division put men as hunters and women as gatherers. And we know that view has not been limited to academics. And we know that that view has been used to make the case that men and women today should stick to their supposedly natural roles that early human society reveals. Well, today we are busting that myth. There's some new research out that says that story about hunters and gatherers was never true. And it should have never been perpetuated in our society and definitely should not have been used to create this hierarchy of men being superior to women. I'm going to talk to a scientist to help us understand why for decades we were fed this fabrication, how it has impacted pretty much everything we do in this society and what we all need to know about hunters and gatherers. In this hour, we are also talking with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. She's running for Senate in the state of California, and she is also here to talk to us about the California Reparations Task Force report recommending reparations for millions of Black folks in California. When we come forward, more with Ariva Martin in real time right here on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I am your host, Ariva Martin. This is hour two of the show, and in this hour... We are talking to Congresswoman Barbara Lee, and we're also talking about this myth that men are hunters and women are gatherers. Now, the reality is that is, as I just said, a myth because there's a new study out that suggests the vision of early men as the exclusive hunters is simply wrong. And that evidence that early women were also hunting has been there all along. Specifically, this new research upends one of the key strands of evidence that scientists have relied on to infer what life was probably like during the period that started roughly 200,000 years ago when Homo sapiens, and that's, you know, men, men and women, first emerged as a species. Uh, until now, the general sense among scientists has been 
that these accounts overwhelmingly pointed to uh, men mainly hunting and women mainly gathering. Uh, I have in this hour a professor of anthropology at the University of Wyoming, Robert Kelly. He's also the author of influential books and articles on hunter-gatherer societies, and he is one of the scientists who is helping us understand how this myth has been uh, perpetuated and disseminated and how it has impacted how we think about everything in this country from you know that so-called gender roles uh, as it relates to raising children and uh, you know everything about what we do in the workplace. Again, this myth has been that women are gatherers and men are hunters. We're going to talk to Professor Kelly, one about how could, you know, um, scientists, how could they have gotten this so wrong? And how has this impacted, again, how we think about uh, the workplace? We're also going to be uh, talking with Congresswoman uh, Barbara Lee, who's going to be joining us. Uh, So when we come forward, Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Professor Robert Kelly, right here on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, I am talking with California Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Good afternoon, Congresswoman. Good afternoon. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to talk a couple of things with you, starting with this California Reparations Task Force, that just a task force report that just came out uh, last week or so. It's over a thousand pages, over 115 recommendations uh, by the task force on how to make whole African-Americans in the state of California as a result of decades and decades of systemic racism. Uh, what are your thoughts about the report? I haven't had a chance to uh, read the entire report, but what I do have to say is, first, I want to thank the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber, for taking this bold action and for the governor, Governor Newsom, for signing the legislation that implemented the task force. California, I believe, is the first state to really do an in-depth review, hearings, and, and study as it relates to what is required to repair the damage of... 250 years of being enslaved, Jim Crow, lynching, segregation, uh, systemic racism. And and so their recommendations, I think we need to take to heart. It is important that we understand that when we see, for example, the disproportionate rates of African-Americans dying of COVID, or for example, the wealth gap, or the criminal justice um, statistics as it relates to African-Americans being uh, unjustly in many respects receiving uh, disproportionate sentences. Uh, When you look at all of the the, uh, indices of our socioeconomic status in America, uh, it's clear that uh, the the trauma of generations of Jim Crow and systemic racism and slavery have led to what the task force is addressing, and that that's extreme disparities and gaps. And until we repair the damage of the past, we're going to continue to go around and around and around with um, tinkering around the edges with mm-hmm. incremental change may or may not work. We've come a long way, but we ha- we're going backwards in many respects because of uh, policies now by the Supreme Court and legislative bodies. But we have to understand that reparations is essential uh, to repairing the damage. 
What do you make, uh, Congresswoman Lee? Some people are criticizing the task force for not including in its 115 plus recommendations a specific dollar amount to be paid uh, to descendants of slaves. They left that up to the legislature to determine, you know, should black folks get 500,000, 1 million, 5 million, 10 million dollars? We've seen, like in San Francisco, the reparations task force that looked at the historic racism in San Francisco, they recommended $5 million to a certain class of blacks in San Francisco. Do you think the California task force should have likewise come up with a specific dollar amount? I think the California task force came up with the recommendations they thought would be the beginning of repairing the damage. Again, I haven't read the entire report nor their recommendations, but I do think they did their due diligence. They did a lot of research. They had input from different um, parts of our communities. And throughout, they went throughout the state and conducted a hearing. So their recommendations, I think, are very solid, and we need to look at them. And uh, in fact, I'm, I don't know for certain, but you know, cash uh, payments may or may not have been part of their recommendations, what the formula was, how they came up with it, if they did or how any community does. But I think it's up to the experts and to the activists and people who weighed in to make the determinations of what the recommendations should be. And you mentioned uh, Secretary of State Shirley Weber and, of course, her innovation and brilliance in bringing forth the legislation at the time when she was in the state legislature that gave way for the creation of this task force. Do you think in this moment, in 2023, you know, we've been through that summer of reckoning in 2020. Uh, we've had now what some people are calling a backlash to that summer of reckoning. Do you think if the uh, proposal, if the piece of legislation was brought forth today in 2023, that it would find support? And the reason I ask that is because now the California State Legislature has to make decisions about implementing those recommendations. And we are in a different moment in history today than we were in 2020. This is really speaks to public and civic education. And I believe that it's important that the public understand why and, and buy in to the proposals and develop the political support and the political will to do this. I just uh, parenthetically, I have legislation at the national level calling for a truth, racial healing, and transformation commission. And I believe that the, the reparations task force, they have the truth. They went around the state. They, they laid the foundation. Uh, that should lead to public discussion and education about truth telling about the past, because we have to look uh, in the Ghanaian, uh, the Akan language of the Ghanaian people in there's this mythical bird, Sankofa. In order to move forward, you must look back. And so the task force has done that. And now we have to build the political will. And that takes, that's hard work, but the public has to buy in. And then I believe, well, aside from racial healing, which you have to tell the truth in order to bring people together to unify, but we have to have everybody on board or at least the majority of the public on board so that the legislature can do its job. I mean, we're in a, that's what democracy is, is supposed to be about. Oh, switching gears for a minute, Congresswoman, and talk about what's going on in, in Washington and politics. Uh, great news today on the inflation, uh, prices down at the gas 
pumps, uh, prices down, you know, in grocery stores. But yet there is this uh, story out today that says young people, Generation Z and millennials are pissed with Joe Biden and could be the decisive vote in the presidential election in 2024. Do you think the Democrats are doing enough with that demographic of voters in terms of getting the message out that the economy is doing great, that unemployment numbers are down, uh, and that the president is really acting uh, upon promises that he made, and those promises are benefiting all Americans, including those uh, young Americans? Yeah, it's very important that all of us get the message out. Let me tell you, uh, two years ago, people were masked up. People were dying of COVID. This administration got the vaccines out. They did everything they needed to do to get us to this point. Not to say that the pandemic is over, or, but look at where we are now compared to where we were then. That's the first thing. People forget. And secondly... You know, there's a lot we have to do in terms of young people because they uh, deserve, and, and the Supreme Court unfortunately ruled against student loan debt cancellation, which I fully support. This administration is tried, has tried every which way, and they are continuing to try to make sure that students are not saddled with this uh, debt uh, as it relates to their college education. Thirdly, when you look at the climate crisis, when you look at bills such as the Inflation Reduction Act, historic provisions put into climate accounts, into environmental justice, you know, into a heck of a lot that addresses uh, to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, to develop into a green economy, to address uh, polluters, and to help establish good-paying union jobs through the establishment and moving forward with the green economy. So this administration has done a heck of a lot. And I've seen that and I've been part of that. I'm on the Appropriations Committee and the Budget Committee. We've delivered millions of dollars to community-based organizations. But I understand why young people could feel uh, disillusioned and not connected because it's hard and the administration is doing the best. I'm doing the best I can. We're trying to explain to the American people what we've done, but what we intend to do. And yes, you're right. Uh, The affordability crisis is still with us, though people can't afford to buy a home in California. You know, young people can't even dream of home ownership because the cost of living is still much too high. So there are issues that we have to address that we haven't been able to, primarily because of the political realities of the Republicans who are trying to turn back the clock on every single aspect of progress that we've made. Absolutely. And real quickly, before I let you go, Congresswoman, tell us about your campaign to become California's next black female senator. Well, let me just say it's really um, a great campaign. We've got uh, many, many local and state and grassroots activists uh, who have endorsed. I'm so proud of my good friend, Mayor Karen Bass. Her endorsement means a heck of a lot in this campaign. Uh, We are raising money. We're moving forward, developing this uh, grassroots organization that really will be targeted to our voters, young people. The polls show that young people 49 and under, uh, once they get to know me, and know not only what I've done, but what I intend to do and how I, my life experiences speak to many of the, the issues that Californians have. Young people believe in me and they trust me. Great. So we're de- developing 
an army of young people to do voter registration, voter education, and we're raising money so that we can be on TV, the media, the ads, because people do need to, especially in Southern California, what I've done, I'm, I'm legislated, I'm an appropriator, and I'm a negotiator, and I've been able to deliver so much for people to make their lives better. And that message is really resonating throughout the state. Well, thank you so much for all that you do for the state of California and for our country. This is Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Congresswoman from California. She represents the districts uh, in Northern California. Always a pleasure to speak with you, my friend. Be well. When we come forward, we're going to talk more about that study about men as hunter and women as gatherers right here on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, I am speaking with Professor Robert Kelly. He's a professor of archaeology at the University of Wyoming, and he has weighed in on this new uh, research by researcher Kara Wall-Scheffler. She's a biological anthropologist, and her new study says that we have gotten it wrong about men being natural hunters and women gatherers. And then everything that leads from that uh, misassumption or that wrong assumption Thank you for joining me, Professor Kelly. I was so fascinated by this study because I I have a general interest in how we have set up our society and how patriarchal uh, our society is and and where some of the the premises for our patriarchy come from. And obviously, this is one of them. So help us understand uh, what we have traditionally thought about, uh, you know, know, humans 200,000 years ago and what this new research tells us. Well, the the new research is is actually following in a, a line of uh, thinking that that actually goes back a, a twenty or thirty years. It's it's wasn't. I, I have to admit, I when I read the paper, I said, "Well, there's there's nothing here that I don't already know." Um, but it was good for them to bring this back out um, into the uh, the the public sphere because obviously. The, the paper resonated with with people. There have been a number of of uh, you know news radios re- re- reports and re- reports in other other media. So it was good of them to to bring this this out. the The, the story really goes back into the 1950s, when anthropologists studying hunting and gathering peoples from ethnographic data, that is, studying living peoples today who live by hunting and 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 gathering. They really privileged hunting. Mm-hmm. When they talked about this this category of 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 people, they referred to them as the, the hunters. There was a conference held in Chicago in 1966. The name of that conference was Man the Hunter. And one of the great revelations at this conference, uh, which was presented by Richard Lee, who had done uh, ethnographic work with the Jitkwazi uh, uh, people in Botswana and uh, Namibia, he pointed out that the majority of food, 85% of the diet, was plant food, not meat. And that virtually all of that was gathered by women, not, not men. So this has been a longstanding joke for many, many decades that the Man the Hunter Conference actually demonstrated um, the complete opposite. So what do you think, since you're saying there was nothing new, and you have known this and other scientists have known this for decades, why do you think now that the report got so much media attention and got the attention of lay folks like myself? 
I, I, I suppose because, um, let me, let, let me make two points here. There, there's, there's two mistakes that people make, uh, that I find people make. I talk with a lot of people about archaeology and about hunter-gatherers because that's what my life has been for the last 50 years. And they make two mistakes. One of them is to think that living, hunting, and gathering peoples of the last century are people that time forgot. These are people that, for some reason, did not make the progress that the rest of the world made. This is, this is incorrect. The other mistake that people make is they think that by going um, back into the past, especially into deep time to the beginnings of the uh, first appearance of Homo sapiens 200,000 or more year, years ago, it's still debated, that they're going deeper into humanity's soul. Mm. And they're seeing human nature in its most raw form. This is also a, a mistake. If you want to study human nature, you and I reflect human human nature as much as anybody of the past 100,000 years. Mm. So both of these statements are somewhat false. But when someone comes along and presents a paper where they compile data that say, look, there's lots of instance, instances in the ethnographic literature of women going out and hunting, this, for, for many people, not anthropologists, but for many other people, this is a way of saying, oh, the things we thought about human nature are all wrong. Yeah, and, and so help us understand, you know, this, this wrong information that we relied on, that men were hunters and women were gatherers, how that assumption about human behavior informs so many of our structures today, whether it's how women are thought of in terms of their role with children or how you know women or men are thought about in the workplace, because it's not just about the hunters and gatherers 200,000 years ago. It's about how we have thought about those homo sapiens 200,000 years ago and their influence on us today. The, 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 the first place we have to start with is, is what what is the actual empirical record? What do, what do the data actually say? And the strong pattern in hunting and gathering societies from the tropical rainforest to the Arctic is that men do most of the hunting of large animals and women are doing most of the gathering of plant food and some uh, opportunistic uh, hunting of, of smaller usually smaller anim animals, where there are accounts in several, a number of ethnographies out there, there are accounts of women who decided because of their particular circumstances that they were going to do the hunting of large, large animals. We can go back to a, a book written in 1938 um, by Ruth Landis called The uh, Ojibwa Woman, where she talks about Women who became uh, became hunters, hunters of large of large game, because of their particular circumstances, and they were considered to be um, uh, they were considered to be odd by other people. And I don't mm -hmm. mean odd in a I don't mean odd in a derogatory sense. I mean odd in a statistical sense. They were but, not but, the norm. But if you th if that assumption 
if that had not been communicated through the decades that men were hunters and women were gatherers, how do you think, you know, we would be today? Would it, how would it impact our lives today differently? Uh, you, you know, it's, it's um, the first thing I'll repeat is that it's not an assumption. I mean, this is an, this is, can be empirically demonstrated that there is this division of labor in foraging societies, and there's probably a good reason for it. But, right, but you're saying the the what, what the scientists now know is that it's not the case that men were exclusively the hunters, that women were hunters too. Correct. Right? So I'm cool. saying if we had been conditioned or socialized in this country with that fact that women were hunters as well as men, how would that have impacted this quote unquote natural order of things between men and women? Because that's what makes this so interesting to me. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not really that interested in what you know people did 200,000 years ago, but I am interested in how we evolved into a society with these so-called you know natural roles that men are supposed to play and women are supposed to play. Those and in every culture in the world, there are there are um, ideas, cultural ideas about what it is that men are supposed to do and what it is that women are supposed to do. These are. Um, I can talk about it from the hunting and gathering case that the the critical element here is probably children. Mm. And, and more particularly, the critical element is that in hunting and gathering cultures, the um, the primary source of nutrition for small children up to about the age of five is breast milk. Hold that thought, uh, Professor Kelly. When we come forward, I want to talk about, again, how you know we think about these roles and what the science and evidence is about the roles of men and women 200,000 years ago influences how we think about the natural roles of men and women today. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and I'm talking with Professor Robert Kelly. He's an archaeologist from the University of Wyoming, and He's helping us understand how this new research or research is not so new to him, but new to us about hunters and gatherers and the natural roles of women and men impact how we think about the roles of women and men today. So, Professor Kelly, you were talking about the role of women, of course, as it relates to children, childbearing and the feeding of children, i.e. via breastfeeding. So why is that significant as it relates to this study? It's it's significant because the obviously men can't do that, so mm-hmm. children, children have to stay with uh, mothers for most of the day, and you can't hunt large game with uh, a very small child in tow. Um, hunting doesn't require great strength; it requires knowledge, it requires stealth, and it requires patience. And these are Anyone who's taken a small child to the grocery store and had them melt melt down uh, on, on you knows that you you can't you can't take them out and do something that requires stealth and and patience. So um, gathering plant food is something you can do and stop what you're doing and go tend to a child. When you're hunting large game, lar- large game, that animal dictates what what happens. And the, the success rate on hunting is, um, in most hunting and gathering societies, it's surprisingly similar to a lot of modern hunting. The success rate is down around 20% or, or lower. So you can't afford to 
have a child along, along who's going to de decrease the success rate of an activity that already has a low su success rate. So let me ask you this, Professor. Uh, this is a statement by one of your colleagues, and she's making reference to the results of this study. She said the implications of these results are potentially enormous. And this is a uh, professor of history, Kimberly Hamlin, at the uh, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and she specializes in ways that evolutionary science has figured into wider culture. She goes on to say, I think that next to the myth that God made a woman from man's rib to be his helper, the myth that man is the hunter and woman is the gatherer is probably the second most enduring myth that naturalizes the inferiority of women. Do you agree with her in that statement? It's not a myth. I mean, it is an empirical fact that men are the hunt, hunting of large game and women as a group, as a group, do the, the, the plant gathering and will opportunistically take other animals. They will participate um, in, in hunting if it's a communal hunt. Mm -hmm. And in that case, they can work in different, um, in different capacities. There's sometimes they're the ones driving animals into hunters. Sometimes they're the hunters that someone else is driving the animals um, uh, uh, into. Well, I, I guess what she is saying is there is a myth that men were the only hunters. So she's not, I don't think, saying that it's a myth that men were hunters. She's yeah. correcting the record based on this study that women are hunters too. And she's making the larger point that this myth about men being exclusively the hunter is next to the myth about women being made from a man's rib. Uh, and how both of those myths have influenced society. And she says, uh, you know, naturalizes this inferiority of women. She goes on to talk about it's fueled the idea that men are supposed to be violent and aggressive. Uh, what do you think of that? So I'm just trying to understand, do, do you agree that this myth that men are exclusively the hunter has influenced how we think of society today and has naturalized the inferiority of women? There, there may be some men out there who who think this, who think that, yes, this is in ancient times, we were the hunters, we were the, the ones who brought the, the food in, uh, we're the important ones. Um, the, the, it, it, of course, it's, it's false. I, I mean, if, if women in foraging societies didn't do what they did, most of the people would starve because they were bringing in more than 50% of the, of the food. Now what men as hunters of large game were able to do, the large animal that they bring in always gets shared out. Everyone mm -hmm. benefits from it. And that, that, that creates a situation where men are able to acquire, um, we might call it political press, prestige by being the one who is sharing this food out. This benefit, but but, but did women gain the same political prestige by sharing the plant food that they gathered, or was it thought to be superior because you were sharing these big game animals? It's it's thought to be superior because you're sharing a resource that is difficult to acquire that has a low su success rate, so it doesn't come in all the time. You can't do this every day. Gathering the plant food, women could do that assuredly every every day and you're saying because women were obviously the only ones that could nurse a baby 
uh, that they couldn't be involved at the same level and extent as men in uh, hunting for big game, putting aside the child because children stop nursing at a certain point. Was there anything biologically other than the child, uh, you know, the, the breastfeeding and the birth of the child that would have prevented women from having the same kind of attention and patience that you talked about to hunt big game? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And all of the um, female hunters in Wyoming would be would be the all the proof that you would need. I know plenty of women who can shoot a moose and field field butcher it and pack it out. So this article suggests that, again, and I'm going to call it a myth, not that men were hunters, but that they were exclusively hunter hunters uh, has been perpetuated because of the lack of diversity in your profession of archaeologists. And as more women uh, have become archaeologists, that, you know, this data is being reported out through the lenses of women. Do you agree with that? The, the field of archaeology has been 50-50. Uh, Male, female for quite some time now, quite 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 some time, and that has an effect. A absolutely, has uh, an an effect. We all bring um, the our our biases to the to the wh whatever it is that we do, and we we often don't even know that those are are are, are biases. You often have to have someone else point them out uh, for for you. Good. There's nobody can approach any subject unbiased. Yeah, but, so but why do you think, since you just said that women were completely capable of hunting big game once they didn't have the responsibility of an infant or, you know, because at some point kids stop nursing and they start, I don't know how they had baby bottles or <laughs> what they were using 200,000 years ago to feed a baby after they were no longer nursing. How come we haven't heard more? Or how come it wasn't, you know, as clearly stated that women were hunters too. If you're telling us that the archaeology field of study has been diverse 50-50 for years now, I would think there would have been more emphasis on sharing that women were hunters. And, and maybe that would have, uh, you know, played a role in this concept of men being the natural breadwinners, men being uh, superior to women. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, uh, I have to put myself in the shoes of the average person in the street rather than an anthropologist who's been studying this for a long, long time. Um, the Yeah, I'm not sure how to answer this question from that perspective. Well, you know what I, I'm getting at? <laughs> that It just feels like to me that men have done the studies and disseminated the information that supports a narrative that men are the hunters because that supports the narrative, as you said, political power, prestige, superiority. But, and um, they have not done as much to share that information about women as hunters so that we could have the same level of stature, political power, and you know, neutralize this notion that we're somehow inferior. Yeah, I, I I would say that that's that's not true. We we have certainly publicized that. You could look at my own book on hunting and gathering peoples called The Lifeways of Hunter Gatherers. Flip through that, and you will find in there a picture of an Agta woman in the Philippines hunting. But wait a minute, Doctor Kelly, and thank you for pointing that out. That you have, and I appreciate you doing that. But you can't deny that it is the myth about men being hunters exclusively that plays into this notion of 
men being, you know, the natural born leaders, being aggressive and being superior to women. I mean, that's, that's perhaps so, but that's not the that's not the story that anthropologists would tell you. And we've we try and hammer away at this in our classes and here today. I'm I'm telling you, uh, even if it were true. So, so are you saying that some folks outside of your field of anthropology grabbed onto this information and that they're somehow, you know, responsible for how society has interpreted this, you know, these factual uh, revelations or these, this research that you, anthropologists have done? They're, they're relying on other sources of information about the past mm. that that's not coming from anthropologists. Okay. All right. So I, so you say I got the wrong scientist for this discussion. <laughs> if I want to talk about how this gets translated into everyday life and the myths about men being superior to women that is not coming from the anthropologists, you all are just reporting the it's facts. You're giving us the research and you've been very clear throughout that women have been and uh, hunters of small game when they're nursing and have the potential to be hunters of big game when they're not nursing. Well, thank you for clearing that up for me. We are out of time, but thank you so much, uh, Professor Kelly. Very interesting uh, subject. I'm interested, like I said, in, in how we get to this patriarchal society that we have today. And this information definitely gives me uh, more insights. Again, thank you for your research on this matter. Uh, next voice that you hear will be Robin Harris and the Rowdy.